Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 222 of the MyFit Podcast. This week, I bring back onto the show Brian Shantosh, otherwise known as Tosh. For 33 days, Tosh and his team rode across the Atlantic Ocean to inspire veterans to build mental resilience. Tosh's team, consisting of him and three other men, relied on their two and a half years of training and their military background to take on a very daunting task. Today's conversation was centered around hearing the stories about the adversity, the mindset, and the lessons he learned while conquering one of the most difficult tasks a human being can sign up for. Tosh is one of those guys that I would love to just sit around a campfire with and just listen to him tell stories. And today was kind of like that. I wanted him to paint a picture for me and for you guys to understand what was it like to be in a 25-foot rowboat and go across 3,000 miles in an ocean. For those of you that have been in the middle of an ocean, I know I've been there a couple of times on a cruise boat, much different than a rowboat. It is a very scary environment. And sometimes what most people can understand is that you are not a lot more powerful than the water and you got to be able to respect the environment. There's a lot of cool insights and lessons learned uh, through this conversation with Tosh. And for those of you that have heard Tosh before, he does such a good job at keeping things very simple and matter of fact. And I don't want that to undermine the fact that these guys did something incredible and something that not a lot of human beings have done. And not only did they complete it, but they also broke a, uh, a record, uh, an all-American record in the time that they did it in 33 days, 17 hours, and 38 minutes. Tosh is doing a lot of great things now over at his ranch in Colorado, uh, putting up uh, events called Diesel Days. So I highly encourage you guys to check those out. If you're interested in learning more, or if you want to donate to his nonprofit, head over to www.teamshutupandrow.com. You could also search Crooked Butterfly and through those two websites, you'll be able to get a hold of Tosh. If you found value in today's conversation and storytelling, be sure to leave a rating, review, and share it on your social medias. Your five-star feedback helps this show grow tremendously and helps to bring on more amazing guests like Tosh. Hope you guys enjoy the story of Tosh and his team rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. Let's go. MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. 
Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinklmnt.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. Josh, welcome back to the MyFit Podcast for round two, man. I'm ecstatic to learn and hear your story today. Uh, thanks, DJ, man. It, it, uh, since the last podcast, um, I just really enjoyed it and think pretty highly of you and, and your community up there. So uh, looking forward to talking. Appreciate it, man. So you just got home from a unbelievable event. You rode across the Atlantic. It was 33 days, 17 hours, and 38 minutes. And I'm just here to hear the stories and learn about what was that like. And before we get into what was it like, I first want to go back a little bit. When did you get the idea to do it? What was training like? Well, how long was this whole entire process? Yeah, I guess starting at the beginning is good, right? Um, it wasn't my idea. Uh, I got an email from a buddy that forwarded um, my name and Chris's name to another team guy that uh, wanted to do something crazy, something big. And um, my name came up along with Chris's with uh, two individuals that he reached out to. Um, Brian Nicholson, the team captain, it was his idea. Uh, he reached out to a couple fellow team guys and said, Hey, do you know anybody that would be willing to do something crazy like this um, and has capacity to do it? And uh, they put me in contact with Brian and did an interview with him and his buddy, Jim. And uh, next thing you know, they, um, they said, yeah, Hey, we want you to be on the team. And then I found out that, you know, Chris Smith, my running mate, he, uh, he was asked to be on the team too. So, that was July 14th because I was just going through emails when I accepted the invitation. So um, it was really towards the end of June, two and a half years ago. That I don't even know what year it is right now. Maybe it was 2021. Maybe it was 2020. I have no idea. 2020. The, the pandemic years just kind of cancel everything, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so two it's, years, uh, two years in the making, man. And I'm a big believer, Brian, that that the separation is in the preparation. I know you don't go anything without preparing. So what was the preparation like going into such a big task? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, it was um, goal setting. Before I even accepted um, the invitation, it was like I wanted to be really, really clear on what we were all trying to accomplish, what was our, our goal set. And um, once I was comfortable with that, you know, the goal was to originally, hey, let's just set a world record. Why not? And, um, you know, real audacious, challenging, definitely outside of what I normally do or try to do with my um, my adventures and, and whatnot. And I was intrigued by everything that would be required to commit to something like this, especially since none of us have ever rowed in a rowboat on an ocean before, largely a new sport, ocean rowing, growing. And um, I accepted that. And so the goal setting piece was was number one, then um, getting to know two unknowns, right? So Jim and Brian had known each other, worked with each other for with the teams and with the government. Um, Chris and I have known each other for 15 something years, um, adventured, raced, do leadership, all that stuff together. 
And so it was basically the pairs getting to know each other was, was pretty important in the beginning. Um, and then over the last two and a half years, it was um, a lot of rowing <laughs> on the concept to uh, rower, right? And we had um, a campaign manager, Angus. He's one of the greatest of all times in the ocean rowing community. He's got multiple world records, rowed across multiple oceans, Indian, Atlantic, Pacific. And that's what he does is he coaches and mentors teams that are vying for top finishes in this race specifically. So um, put him on board and he put us in touch with his uh, his mate. They're out of the, uh, London who organized our um, physical training to build physical capacity specifically for an ocean row. Um, and the two of those guys actually set the world record during this race. It's been broken since, but um, they're um, well-known in the community, right? Along with, um, so that's Gus, Angus, and then Duncan. And uh, I got to spit, man. Sorry. I, I quit chewing and then I just started again. <laughs> uh, that's, how, that's how it goes. I want to go back real quick to the, so the first part was the goal setting. You said you, you wanted to start with setting a world record. Was there any hesitancy between the four of you? Like, man, is that too much? Was there any friction of like, I don't know if that's the right goal or were you all on, on board? All four of you were like, hell yeah, that's what we're doing. Well, that's an interesting conversation, right? Cause originally that was um, either Jim or Brian, their idea. Um, and we had a, another team guy, Clint Bruce, who um, was helping shape some things uh, with us. And it just came up like, hey, do that. And then it was presented and it's like, hmm, wow. There was some self-doubt in there for sure on my part. Like, oh, set a world record. Like, you're foolish. You're ignorant. You're arrogant. Um, and then it's like, well, why not? You know, two and a half years to train. Um, I was excited by what what does it actually mean to be top competitor now understand too a world record in a newly emerging sport right where over the years it's going to continue to get broken and broken until we start to see what actual potential is in this in this community but um originally after we posed it threw it around a little bit chewed on it each individually um in parts collectively between individuals we all were like okay yeah let's do this and so that really drove the boat that we bought we bought um, the best of the best boats, brand new, instead of buying a used boat, you know, carbon fiber that uh, Rannick built for us specifically. In fact, Angus Collins actually built the boat, our campaign manager um, at Rannick in, um, in the UK. And then it started to um, help us organize who we were going to bring in to our cadre, our team. So we brought in, um, you know, Angus, we brought in Gus, we brought in AIM-7, Eric Corum, um, sports performance and uh, psychologist type guy. We brought in um, nutritionists. I used Cassandra Hobart. Um, the other three tried to use this guy from New Zealand, Jeff McDonald. Uh, Omega Wave came on board with us to monitor um, heart rate variabilities and rest and recovery um, to optimize our training, both volume and intensity. And um, Concept 2, we brought in Concept 2 and had them design some custom ores for us to um, just anything we possibly could do to give us a, an edge, knowing that we were already um, at a disadvantage because of um, our technique and our experience in, in ocean rowing, right? Yeah. Um, and what we were, were, were leveraging was our mindsets 
our military background through adversities and things like that and our um, strength powers, sheer force of will type stuff, which proved to be valuable, but we, we ended up a little short. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but um, sure. so, so it helped us organize a lot of stuff. And, and obviously that um, incurs a lot of expense. So we were very fortunate to have some really big sponsors, you know, Rogue Fitness, Black Rifle Coffee, Concept2, and um, XIT Ranch that really funded 80% of this whole adventure. And, and Brian, I think that one of the lessons that we can pull out of this is that, you know, there's, it's one thing to take on a task and just participate. Hey, we're just going to go do this see how it goes. We're going to have some fun. There's another route of saying, we're going to do this and we're going to learn about each other. And then I'm going to go for a freaking world record. I mean, that's a different mindset, different mentality. And you guys took the, you guys took the harder route there. You see that there's a difference between, Hey, I'm just going to participate. You see that all the time, in the CrossFit games, right? Some people are just there. They're happy to be there. Other people are like, Hey man, I'm here to win. And they, their attitude, their mindset, their preparation is a lot different. Yeah, I, I think that um, I'm, I have an eye for consistency. Um, I have um, an eccentric uh, personality too that um, f- hones in on things like that, and you know, do what you say, say what you do, type stuff. And if you're gonna have an ambition, understand what that ambition is through and through, and then start to organize resources, organize your efforts, um, your schedules, your priorities, all of that stuff, to be consistent with supporting. The ambition. I find that in my world of leadership and um, nonprofit uh, work with veterans, that that's one of the largest places for disappointment that leads to um, regret and resentment is when we have an inconsistency in in behavior versus goals, right, or ambitions. The second part was getting to know each other. I'm just curious now. We're going to get into what it was like being in the boat. Then you you got to like your teammates, man. But before that, how did how well did you know each other? How did you get to know each other? What sort of strategies, activities did you guys use to kind of create a stronger bond? Yeah. Um, right quick, you said something. You got to like your teammates, and um, you don't because I didn't at first, and I grew um, to like and and have a profound respect for them. But um, I think I think liking your teammates is a force multiplier for sure, right? Um, but I don't think it's a requirement. Um, but uh, yeah, so I knew Chris super well. Uh, we're really really tight. Nicole and I, with um, Chris and his his wife um, Andrea, um, we vacation together every year. We're out at CrossFit Trident out in DC. We we hang out. Chris and I have done. God's own primal quest, the arrow ahead, um, a lot of ultra endurance events together. So we, we really have a, a really tight bond. Jim and Brian knew each other, probably not as well as Chris and I, but they had a, a, a very good familiarity with each other. Um, so the challenge was matching the pairs up proximity, um, where we all live was a, was a challenge, you know, Chris out in Alexandria, Virginia, Jim up in uh, Whitefish, Montana, and uh, myself in Colorado, Boulder. And then Brian lives just about an hour south of me down in Larkspur outside of Castle Rock. So um, in the beginning, I got to know Brian really well. And that um, that learning curve for each other grew pretty quickly. He would come up to the house, hang out. Um, I host the Diesel Day events. I host the Big Fish Foundation fundraiser. So he was a participant in those. A lot of individual challenges that um, I put on for myself, he would, he would come up and be part of. Um, and we, we did a couple other little tiny things where Jim wasn't available to come out. 
so um chris bryan and i like we spent 24 hours in the woods in the middle of winter time just chopping trees with an axe and doing doing small stuff like that to just get to know each other under different stresses conditions environments um so that your your oddities can start to come forward and then you learn each other and how to manage and deal with each other um we actually talked to a lady who rode across the ocean i don't think part of this race but as a soloist and she faced some exceptional adversity on her row bad storms capsizing the boat um some significant injuries and she persevered she was an older lady and um we did a we did a call with her that eric quorum set up and you know she's given us all this advice and we're asking her all these questions and she's like hey the best thing you can do is find the smallest tent possible and the four of you fit in it for three days in the middle of nowhere and just live together and that excited me because that's how I think too, right? People say, oh, this row, what are you doing? You got to train physically. And oh my God, the physical, and I was like, yeah, you know, physical's mildly interesting compared to the, the um, psychological and relationships with the people that you're going to share um, a significant life event with is probably the biggest thing that you can focus and hone in on. And so um, we just tried to take her advice there and uh, just find unique ways to create shared common experiences that put ourselves under stress, duress, um, uncertainty, and exertion to get to know each other. And so we spent some time there. We also, um, every five or six weeks, once we got the boat um, exported, imported into the U.S., we, we, we slipped it up at a place in um, Florida, Amelia Island on the Atlantic side of um, Florida, up north by the Georgia border. And we would go every five, six weeks as a team and train for a week on that boat and with us you know leaving family and friends behind leaving your your workspace all the other daily life implications that you have responsibilities so that we could just focus on each other um we would have hotel rooms with two hotel rooms with two of us in each and then we, every time we went we would switch who we bunked with spend a lot of time on the boat you know ate ate together meals socialized and really got to know each other pretty well in a short period of time but you know that's only one trip every five six weeks you know so um you know you try to make the most of what you can do as you look through back through that preparation period that two and a half years what was a moment brian where you had a a breakthrough where it was maybe something with one of your teammates where i don't know maybe they were like hey hey tosh i don't, I don't appreciate it when you yell at me i don't get motivated by that this is how i get motivated it doesn't have to be something along those lines but what is something that was a breakthrough that you learned during those two and a half years about your teammates that helped you we'll get to it soon but that helped you when you were in competition yeah there was a lot of those moments actually um which we would normally or or superficially call negative moments or confrontational moments um and i think with our military backgrounds and, and high level of professionalism and, and um how we operated in our in our military careers we had that way of um dealing um managing conflict really really well okay. and um, we communicated fairly well and that just grew more and more so like everything that you're saying like hey i don't like to be talked to like that like maybe it didn't come out in those words but it would come out in actions and we all would be able to recognize the actions and behaviors and then respond very in a very healthy way for the most part um so that was that was really good you know we had a couple storms um while we were training we had some long long rows on the ocean under conditions that just were physically miserable 
heat, um, headwinds, choppy waves, things like that. But um, to answer the question, like for one example, and I think it probably was the most profound moment for me. Um, I had a big run in with Jim uh, in Florida, the last training session we did. So maybe seven months before the race. And um, it just came to a head. You know, I had been drinking a little, Jim had been drinking a little bit. It'd been building up, building up. And a comment got taken out of context, but it opened up the door to really let out root root causes instead of symptoms of something, right? There was a lot of, a little bit of passive aggressive stuff going on, um, you know, four alphas trying to sort things out. And um, it was very uncomfortable for Chris and Brian. I remember, you know, we were at dinner and, but I think that was real formative for Jim and my relationship moving forward that we had that because I was able to understand now from a different point of view where Jim was coming from and who he was and why he was acting a certain way and responding to me in a certain way and vice versa. And the funny thing is, is those, um, that root cause was probably, I mean, it was legitimate, but like there was a lot of misunderstanding. And when we had this, this blowout and then there was like a cool off period for two, three days. And then there was a reconnect and then another reconnect later, um, realized like, okay, cool. It was just good to get that out instead of harboring it because really you were harboring it and it was building and it was taking shape of something that was much different than really what it was. And by, by forcing that communication through, through a confrontation, um, it allowed us to grow, grow through it. Um, in, in a good way. And it changed like what I had inside of me was growing off to the Northwest. And when we had this conversation, like all of a sudden it just started to come back to center and it actually shifted to be more East and then same thing for Jim. And then we could meet with each other, um, with common ground, uh, appreciation, respect, and understanding. And yeah. that proved to be for me, one of the most significant moments. Cause number one, I came out of that heated, um, angry, insulted. I think he did as well, but it served as fuel for me to just increase the intensity of my training. Like I'm going to prove this motherfucker wrong. I'm going to prove him unfounded and then also vice versa. And so it was very, very corrective in behaviors for both of us and each other. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like the breakthrough happened after the breakout. Sometimes we need to have those, but, but the appropriate or the, doing it appropriately, right. Making sure that we're being constructive about our, our conflict resolution, I think is, is important. Um, okay. Now let's get into it a little bit. So you take to talk to me about what was it like the day of the preparation? Let's, let's walk through kind of those 33 days. What was that first day? Like, what was the, you know, for the people that weren't there, walk us through what it was like. Yeah. So it, it started with a long trip, right? From all of our home stations, me in Frankfurt, and then um, continue our journey to Spain, then to Tenerife, the Canary Islands, and then a, a ferry to Gamera, San Sebastian, Gamera, La Gamera. And we arrived um, two weeks prior to the race. There's a, a requirement to arrive 10 or 12 days prior, and you go through all this race prep and inspections, um, some rehearsals, some drills things like that over the course of the week and a half, two weeks. And the excitement was really, really high. Here we are. It's actually here. It's been two and a half years in the making. Like, oh, wow, it's right in front of you now. And so excitement started to just get real. Um, focus started to get real. And I think it really gelled the team together for the for the 14 days that we were in La Gomera. 
prior to getting on the boat to start the race. Um, sorted through a whole bunch of stuff, gear, expectations, um, the whole nine yards. Um, oh, it, it's important to go back. Maybe you're interested, maybe you're not, but we changed our goal sets um, from setting a world record to first place to rowing as fast as we possibly can. And I necessarily wasn't, I was the minority of the group. I was not happy about changing our goal sets um, mid-stride twice um, because of the way I process things. But it was a team decision, and it was it was good. Um, we can talk about that more or not later. But uh, I think it's important to say, like, hey, we started out with goal setting, but we refined um, along the way, um, whether appropriate, not beneficial, or not. That that begs to be questioned with who you who you ask. So then. Um, all this excitement, 44 teams packed into this really, really tiny, small island. The whole island kind of, well, maybe not the whole island, but um, where we were located at on the island, like the whole community just like rallies for this race. There's two things that they look forward to every year as a community, and it's um, this sport fishing classic that they host and the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. So um, the whole place turns out, it's it was phenomenal. Um, and then, you know, meeting the other teams, creating camaraderie so a lot of the teams weren't in it to race there was singles there was pairs there was threesomes there was foursomes and fivesomes some were race class some were ocean open class but um whether you were competing against another team or not that competition was there but also there was a sense of camaraderie like hey we're all going to be in this massive ocean for this ridiculous race right uh, world's toughest row, something, something, one of the top five toughest things to do, whatever. And um, it was neat to see the camaraderie between the teams form. You know, um, everybody had a vested interest. In and I can share a story about on the ocean against uh, with the Spaniards who actually won the race, um, which was so beautiful. And um, but everybody was in it for each other, wanted to be, each other to be successful, safe and the the race cadres all wanted to win you know so it was really really neat it's, it's much different than what i've experienced in say triathlon community where it's i, I got out of doing triathlons because i just didn't like the the social arrangements between participants and it just didn't feel warm you know and i started to move through endurance and ultra endurance events in in sports and races adventures i started to like that camaraderie that sense of community with the combination of um competition it, it really felt good wholesome beautiful you know or or at least from my point of view from what i'm interested in it felt right right i'm not going to disparage anybody that like hey they don't they're not interested in that you know um but for me it was it was really really good and wholesome it's something that's like oh i really like this so and then start start day of the race um 44 boats staggered start two three and a half and then two and a half minute intervals depending on uh as it went down the line and what was um, the date the of the, what is the day of the launch i think it was the 12th of december it was 12th of december okay. and we started off we were an hour and 55 minutes into the actual race start when our boat launched and we had a goal we needed to be out in front in the lead within 24 hours so we wanted to pass all the other boats 
and we wanted to have enough of a lead for the next handful of boats that were leaving in two and a half minute intervals behind us that we would be by time and distance in first place after 24 hours. And uh, we were for a couple of days. It was great. Um, we just really hammered, you know, the, the shift pattern was row for two hours, get 40 minutes of rest, row for two hours, get 40 minutes of rest nonstop for 24 hours. And then we cycled down to row two hours, rest two hours, but somewhere within a 24-hour time period to add an extra two hours of rowing whenever you found it best fit. We had headwinds for the first um, three days, three and a half days, four days. So it really served an advantage to us because of our strength and just force of will to just get behind the oars and just hammer it out hard. Um, and then when the wind started to shift and we had follow, generally following seas, um, that's where people that had more technical prowess started to have an advantage over us. Um, and we were in a really tight race for the first seven, nine days. Um, and it was, it was awesome. It was exhausting. Team was pushing hard. Everybody's personalities towards win. It was very, very strong. Some people were responding well to it. Some people weren't um in our boat and just trying to sort sort that out um everybody was taxed in a in a way that was unique to them and um exhibiting behaviors and attitudes moods associated with being like taxed and then also the prospect of hey we've, we're only you know seven to nine days into this we still have another 20 days 25 days left um where are you going to be when you're already feeling like you would you would row for two hours you would get like 15 to 20 minutes of sleep after you sorted out your hygiene, your boat maintenance, your team responsibilities, all of that, and get back on the oars. But your body, your whole body would be just aching, cramping. You're like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but inevitably three, five minutes into your shift, it went away and your intensity just climbed to the roof. So um, it was really exciting for uh, the first week and a half. So the first seven, nine days, everything's going well. It's exciting. You're having a good time. At some point, I'm sure that some of that excitement went away. And this is one of those tasks that once you get going, you can't, you can't really turn around, Tosh. You're in it, man. You got to start to, you know, swallow that and be like, okay, now we're, we're going. I'm not, I'm not done here. What was the time? So seven to nine days you talked about, that's when things were going well. When was the first moment when real adversity hit and what was it? Um, Real adversity for me was when I started to have an awareness that we're, we're not going to accomplish what we set out for to, to do. And that was probably like the three-day mark when I recognized seeing some things in another individual who was having a really, really hard time adjusting and not seeing some of the things, disciplines happen that would be um, indicative of okay, hey, we're going to be able to sustain and, and win this thing. And now wrestling that with how well we were doing at that point and the feedback we were getting from our um, shore-based uh, campaign crew with what the other teams were doing, um, that was adversity for me in my head. Like, okay, I need to reconstruct some expectations, start managing some things, figure out how I can leverage leadership to try to push each other to stay spirited, hold on, hold on, keep going. Don't worry about seven days from now. Let's just worry about 
now. Let's worry about 12 hours from now. Um, and, you know, Chris and I think damn near exactly alike. Uh, and then just trying to figure out the other two in, in the moment. Right. And um, it was, it was interesting because one individual was really struggling to adjust and um and that's okay but also when you when you couple a little bit of ego and pride then that individual's not necessarily willing to you know um release a little bit and they just want to keep going and knowing that that's not good for the team that's good for your ego and your pride but it's going to put you even further deficit and just couldn't get him to um you know accommodate like prudence for the benefit of the group um and, and it wasn't out of an, a place of ugly it's what happens right in the heat of the moment if you haven't been in the moment ever before and i don't think he's ever been in those moments before um like in in this sort of scenario or situation right um or endeavor so that was really hard for me that was um a big moment that was within the first three days or so um talk to me a little we on had that, on um, that piece of adversity real quick before we move on talk mm -hmm. what, what were some of the what were some of the strategies what worked for you to overcome that strategy was it was it internal self-talk to yourself tosh or were you having conversations with the men on your boat what helped you get through that adversity i had a tremendous amount of self-talk um it's always chattering my mind in the beginning when i'm when i'm on mission my mind doesn't drift to daydreaming. Um, it doesn't worry about um, itself, you know, and, and comfort. It's, it's, it's fucking on, right? Uh, and I don't know if I did it well. I did it authentically in who I am. And I recognize like, okay, hey, you're fucking this up right now. Um, you have to adjust. And I don't think I adjusted soon enough. Um, but it was something that was always ticking. And my driver is to just get in your shit, you know? Um, and that was received by one individual as, um, picking on him or targeting him. And it was being received that he was being judged. And it's like, ah, you know, and it wasn't until maybe day 14, 15, that we had a, a big conversation. Then another one around day 20 that we had another conversation to, to clean it all up. But, um, I was very aggressive. And I usually get a good response from that, especially in a, in a superior subordinate relationship. Um, and other teams that I've been on who are like really driven, right? Um, this individual I thought was driven by A and B, but they weren't driven by A and B as much as that person let on or communicated to the rest of the team. And so it wasn't until after we had a, uh, uh, not a catastrophic, but a significant um, uh, mechanical failure um, situation that uh, it's like, okay, hey, Tosh, you need to adjust quick, you know, because um, you're not getting the the um, refinement of behavior and attitude performance that um, you thought you were going to get using this technique or the technique that you default to, really. That's what I was doing, the technique that I defaulted to, default to because I've had success with it with most people in the past. Um, and we had, uh, so yeah, I, that self-talk always, like, I, I don't feel, I'm not trying to say this with a puffed out chest. Like, I don't feel like I was 
physically taxed to a degree that I wanted to be taxed um, for the bulk of the race. I was really looking at, into going dark places, punishment um, physically, and seeing what the mindset could do to con- help continue and extend a, a culminating point or a point where you need, now need to focus on recovery a little bit more. And um, that bothered me because I thought that's what we were all in it to do. Um, and we were all were like every individual was trying to do that. We just had different thresholds for culmination or like tolerance or what we're willing to do and, and mindsets and how people worry about shit that I just like, hey, why are we worried about this? Um, but we worked really, really well together as a team and we had a profound amount of mutual respect for each other uh, at that point. And so at, at, a, at a bare minimum, we would operate from a baseline of everybody's doing the best that they can and putting in the effort that they can or think that they can, whether they can do more or not, they just not aware that they can, or whether it's perceived that they should be doing more or not. Like that stuff is, is all very, very suspect conversation. Right. Yeah. I would love to take um, it one step deeper. I I would love to hear if, was there a word phrase or sentence that worked for you, whether it's said out loud or said in your mind that helped you to push and persevere? Was there something that works for you when you were out on the ocean? For me, for me individually with my own self-talk in my own head and um, a cue that somebody could use for me is like, hey, if your son was a passive observer right now watching you, would you be proud? Would you be setting the example for him that you would want him to learn, grow, and be the man that you want him to become. And, and same for my daughters, right? Um, that works phenomenally for me. Also, if um, like, yeah, hey, Tosh, like you, you, you want to quit or you're tired or you can't do anymore or you can't give anymore or whatever. It's like, hey, if somebody had a knife to your wife's throat, could you do one more rep? Could you push a little harder? If the answer is yes, then you haven't reached a, a culminating point. That works for me. Um, what also works for me too is if someone says, Hey, quit being a pussy. And it's like, Oh shit. Yeah, I'm not right. Those work for me really, really well. Um, I do it for myself. And, um, when others do it for me, I respond well. I'm not a, Hey, let's go, man. Hey, hurry up. Come on. You're doing great. Like, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not, Oh, I'm a proud of you. I'm not that kind of guy. Um, Hey, try harder. I'm not that kind of guy. Some people are, um, no judgment there. But understanding um, the pros and cons of both is is essential, especially when you're trying to know and understand your audience um, that you're trying to motivate to aspire to something more than than they're doing right now, so that they don't let themselves down. Right? Um, stop trying to let yourself down. Hey, Tosh, stop trying to let yourself. The thoughts that you're having right now, your your desires, those are you. Your mind's mind trying to let yourself down. And if you remember the future, you've done it in the past. Don't don't fucking do it here. Um, and that didn't work so well for for a couple of teammates, which is fine. I had to adapt and evolve. Um, and so I found different ways to to help motivate and and um, get people to keep going. And ultimately, I I think I was successful because we finished the race in in a remarkable time. It just so happened that the competition field is getting better and better and better. But I mean, across the ocean in 33 and a half days, if you look at all of the race completions, we're in the top 
very few percents of all ocean crossings at this race with with our time. It just so happened that these other boats were better this year and we had a, a field like so um our campaign manager Angus he says like hey the race is more or less decided in the first 600 miles. The top 3 boats at the 600 mile mark generally finish in one of those positions a podium position after 3000. And then this year we hit the 600 and then it was like hey man this race is different than it's ever been they're predicting that there's going to be five to seven boats all finished within 24 hours like that's never happened never even anywhere close so we got to get ahead at the 900 900 is a is what a lot of these guys talk about is like stage one like boom get that first 900 miles done 600 miles and 900 and so it was like okay i want you in first place by 900 miles and we were just short of first place but well within like sniffing distance tied for second and then we had weather coming in so it was like hey we're going to put ourselves in the paint because the reward is coming the reward isn't that you get to rest but the reward is or go easy the reward is that you're going to have phenomenal winds phenomenal seas you're going to make great speed and we're going to be able to work a new routine now and we're going to keep going and we're going to see who's got the the best grit at 900 because it's a race and then it was like okay hey we're there i was like oh man this is really really tight still this is nutso and um positions were changing everybody was within like 10 or 15 miles like imagine that after 900 miles in an ocean some boats were on a course farther to the north some boats were farther to the south in these little groups and you know all trying to play currents and weather systems and winds and whatnot trying to figure out what the best route is to get the fastest but it's not necessarily the shortest distance right you could go the shortest distance in 10 knots of wind and make 3.4 knots or you can go you know 400 miles farther in 30 knot winds going four knots and win the race over the, the shorter distance um so then it was like okay hey let's just get to where we've got these big winds and now um it'll take some of the technique out of the system equation for teams we'll leverage weather waves and um we'll just we'll just ride it out and we'll see where we get in another 10 days and we got to that point in really really good position this is kind of where the story with the, the spaniards come in we um just finished off 36 hours straight of three up rowing so rode for two hours 40 minutes of rest we did that for 36 hours came off of that and now we're in these 22 knot winds gusting up to 28 to 30 the waves are stacking they're 25 footers and then every now and then the sets are coming in 30 plus foot waves and it was just ripper and um we had our first mechanical where the auto tiller tripped and so the auto tiller is basically managing your rudder to stay on course so you don't have to hand steer hand steering is exhausting um it's a it's a extra task that just chews up um rowing and rest and so when we had that fault we were in 30 foot waves and uh what day was this it spooked this was christmas day so um 13, i actually called angus it was 10 30 at night christmas december 25th right um i called angus on a sat phone like fuck because we we had a fault with the auto tiller we solved it okay no problem 
And then 10 minutes later, it was a hard fault and it was um, dark, no moon, giant waves, wind, rain, and the boat, oh, when the auto tiller trips off, you, you lose steerage. Now you're kind of like at the mercy of the waves and trying to figure stuff out. Two people are sleeping, two people are rowing, boom, and you got to jump up and do like this battle drill. You know, you pull the tiller off, you got to hand steer, you got to correct, you got to right the boat, and we got sideways in a wave, big swell. And um, I hopped off the oars, jumped down into the stern cabin. Brian got out to try to get on deck to help with the with the instrumentation while I was underneath trying to fix the tiller. And um, when I launched off of my station, you know, one of our oars, usually we put a, when you launch off the station, the oars will start to follow and um, just kind of float nice, nice, nice. And when the auto tiller went off, the boat started to turn sideways and broached with the waves. And the oar got pinned down below the boat, kind of perpendicular. And um, it bent a three-inch steel um, plate and a gate that the oar sits on. It bent the plate. Angus said he's never seen a plate bend before. We we bent two of them. <laughs> um, and we broke the gate. Angus said he's never seen a gate really break. And so when we were talking about bringing spare parts, we were like, okay, we're not going to bring extra shit, right? Well, that happened. And um, I think we all think that the, um, the fact that the ore went in perpendicular is what saved us from capsizing because we rolled and were well over, you know, 90 degrees. Um, and I think the ore being in that position was what helped it not, you know, completely flip. And, uh, but anyways, we, we, we solved that that evening and it was kind of spooky, but now we had some equipment that needed to get fixed. Um, you have to deal with a little bit of uncertainty, like a little bit of near anxiety, like, holy shit. Like, you know, now we're not one person rowing and we're going to go into a shift pattern for a few hours until we can get the boat fixed in the daylight, get back on course. Hey, we're losing, you know, we lost time. We lost distance. I think we ended up giving away 17 miles during this event and um come out the backside of that so that was a really spooky moment that um I, it took one person a long time to recover from and not that they were broken it just it took it was another added uh, adversity into this person's psychological profile of things that are going on and i'm um, just kind of delayed right like this person was pretty much incapacitated from the 36 hours of going he was um largely just finally adjusting to being at sea at this race and then boom this happens is that because there was some fear of death or i mean what what was it that was there a fear of death not for me no um for the person that had a hard time coming back was it or, or was it like i can't do this what was the fear I don't know. You know, I haven't had a conversation with that person. Um, and I don't know if that individual has really finished processing at all. Um, he's been largely silent um, the last two weeks. He's also dealing with some other stuff that's going on that happened while he was away. Um, and so we're just loving teammates, you know, just respecting space and time. Um, and, it, and it's no slight, like we all experience these things um, in different ways and we all respond to them in different ways. And it just, I, I don't think it was fear. I don't think that was it because I mean, we were pretty well trained the survival the safety equipment was redundant upon redundant upon redundant but i mean i was feeling uneasy for sure i was spooked um 
I mean, you're in these, you're in the middle of the ocean. You're 900, 1,000 miles into the middle of an ocean. Help is nowhere. It's an unsupported race. There's not safety boats or anything like that. Like you launch your EPIRB, you tread water, try to get your lifeboat out, try to get the your boat back up, and you just send your SOS signal and somebody's going to come and get you. But they're not going to get you in 30 plus foot swells and 30, 35 not winds. Come get you. If you need to get the hell out of there for some reason, you need to get home. You're not in this anymore. I'm out. I'm tapping out. How long is it until somebody can come get you? So we're prepared to go for five days. Um, survival rations, immersion suits, life raft, all that whole stuff. They say that on average, um, within 48 hours, uh, somebody's going to come. There's um, maritime law and traditions, customs that um, the nearest, every vessel that receives a distress signal is obligated to consider help whatever that help may be it might be another radio call it might be trying to get in position it might be drop off supplies whatever it is right um it's maritime law um and what happens is is in in this place like um commercial vessels usually are the ones that respond right so a big huge tanker would come off course and render assistance it's the way it works there was a boat the team fight or die all american veteran team their boat capsized and they were in their life raft for 17 hours before a Canadian commercial vessel came and picked them up, rescued them, and they never recovered the boat. If you go on to um, the trackers, you'll see this boat drifting in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean right now. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know the details or the data on what a, what the response time is, but, you know, you, you're you figuring, they, they, they told us like within 48 hours, they'll usually you'll have a vessel um, in, in station to to be rendering physical assistance um you know rescues at sea are really dangerous um you don't you don't really appreciate i never really appreciated it until you start seeing these things and you start hearing the stories and then when you experience the conditions and i'm not foreign to being in an ocean and big water but not on a 25 foot rowboat <laughs> you know um you are so humbled by the magnitude of of the ocean and the power so um but yeah um they they're, they're all healthy um but they came this close like so close to it being a catastrophic event um it it spooked a lot of people the race was like oh my god so um that's what we that's why we have to go through all our certifications for all the training all the drills all the preparation to to increase your chances right and um you know knock on wood there's never been a, a catastrophic incident um, where there was some sort of loss of life or um, permanent physical uh, impairment, right? Um, for the course of this race. Walk me through and me and the listeners through the the differences between the day and the night. Very polarizing. I'm assuming that during the day, it probably got pretty hot. And then at night, was there, was there light? Did it get cold? I mean, what was the difference between rowing during the day and at night? Enlighten my listeners, paint the picture for us. Yeah. Uh, so daytime, you know, in the beginning of the race, temperatures were, were fine. Um, as we moved further and further into the race, the heat of the day, um, that, those were my worst shifts. There was um, one row shift, potentially half of another row shift, and then two rest cycles that were just really, really debilitating. Um, you know, you're in the stern cabin. It's a very, very tiny, tiny space. The instrumentation, um, the rudders, the steerage and everything, and then um, all the gear supplies, very, very tight and sweltering because you have to keep the door shut. And so you would just bake. I mean, it was easily over 100 degrees, sweaty, damp, smelled like urine, smelled like sweat, smelled like farts. It just, I think I described it to um, 
to Rogue that it was like a a three-year-old's diaper that hadn't been changed in three days. Like it was that disgusting in there. And um, that was hard. So you'd actually look forward to rowing, even though it was in the heat, you know, you're wearing long sleeve shirt, you know, sun hat, fucking massive amounts of sunscreen. Um, but you had a breeze. And so um, your exertion level was adding more to the heat and a little bit of solar incidents, right? But going into that cabin for your recovery period, I would come out of that cabin my stern cabin bunk and um, feel less recovered, more fatigued, more debilitated mm. than before I went in after a two hour row shift. Crazy. Right. Um, so that was the days, um, you know, you got the, the, the benefit of the light. So you're watching the waves, you can see things coming, but it also changed how you tackled your row stroke. I found for me personally, like, okay, hey, here comes a wave and I would try to adjust. And I was actually more clunky in the day than at night. You can't see much at night um, unless the full moon was out or, or the moon was out. Um, and those moments were absolutely gorgeous. But um, at night, when you can't start to see the waves and try to do weird stuff, you just basically row. And what you get is what you get. And I found that I was more efficient at night when I couldn't see. But then on the flip side, being, you know, coordinated. And having some sort of choreographed row stroke with the person behind you or in front of you, sometimes when there's three of us rowing, not just two, was more challenging. Um, the nights were cooler, um, just gorgeous. Uh, I would row basically with most of the time I rode with no pants or shorts, underwear on, just kind of naked, waist down. And I would wear a rain shell up top. Sometimes I'd take the rain shell off um, because we were getting squalls here and there and just to take the bite of the wind off. Um, some of the nights, the, the, the stars, spectacular, shooting stars, um, no moon, very, very dark, but just magnificent. And then um, super beautiful, but no more, no less beautiful than when the moon was up and that soft reflection of the moon off the water um, that allowed you just to see just enough, you know, it was, was really gorgeous. I looked forward to the, the sunsets and sunrise shifts and then the, the wee dark middle of the night shift um, when I was rowing with Chris really special moments. Those are my look forward to moments um, on my daily pattern. And then at night though, you know, the sleep monsters start to come in. You really start to feel your fatigue because the, the sun's not um, disguising your fatigue for you. Right. And so you, you're trying to fight with caffeine or I chewed Copenhagen damn near nonstop um, at night um, caffeine gum and uh just to try to stay awake try to stay awake you know pinch yourself slap yourself on the back of the neck have conversations play loud music but um the nights really did invite a lot of um sleep um desire for sleep i'm curious to hear the ones that you can at least share with us what types of conversations were you guys having i mean was it times when it was like guys shut the hell up we just need to be quiet for a little while or were there some really enlightening conversation i mean you're talking about 33 days with four people were there conversations that you're, you'll never forget? Oh yeah. Some of my most favorite conversations I had with Jim, um, the, the, the guy that we had the big confrontation with during training, like I've really grown fond of having talks with Jim, especially at night. Didn't really talk a lot during the day. Um, but night, you know, talking helped. Um, we would have philosophical discussions, leadership discussions. We would talk about, heavy equipment machinery because he has a business where he does that. And we would talk about hunting. We would talk about like, just, you know, run the gambit. Um, and we had silly conversations, just like stupid 
conversations about nonsense. We would play little games like would you rather's or hey, let's you know name games or actors and actress games or whatever, whatever. Um, juvenile conversations, conversations that were really, really crass that I would I'm not proud of, but just you just pass the time. You know, it's it's like locker room talk, but I don't like locker room talk because it's not who I am. But at the same sense, it's you know the conversations that you know devolve over time but um yeah it ran the gambit of everything just to stay engaged we had speakers um bluetooth speakers so we would just jam music we would be singing just didn't matter whether you were on key off key knew the words or didn't know the words it was just man it was awesome and then our bluetooth speakers because of the salt they stopped working about halfway through uh, so we kind of went silent on music for 90% of the time uh, for the second half of the row. I listened to an audio book. I know Chris and Jim listened to audio books. Brian never had headphones in. Um, listened to music. Uh, but the thing is, is, when you put your headphones in, it insulated you from your team. So, you know, you used your headphones sparingly. Like sometimes I just did not want to talk, but I knew gym behind me like to talk so it would be like okay, hey i'm coming out with my headphones on next shift because that's what i need um i'm gonna put one headphone in this next shift or hey no headphones this next shift or whatever it was because that's what you need and there was really cool um mutual uh i don't want to call it compromising because nobody compromised themselves they just recognized that the benefit to the whole was to do this and so that was the decision it wasn't a compromise um and i really like that framing a lot um i use that framing in my life anyways but um i don't believe in compromising i believe in making decisions so um yeah the music piece was 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 big um and i was surprised like brian rode largely never talked and just rode in silence no music and that well in the beginning when we had music playing um through the speakers but he really just powered and ground you know in in silence for the majority of his time <laughs> So as we're kind of crossing the timeline here, so we're kind of in that day, 22, 23, 24, tell me about the last 10 days. What, what were some of the memories or some of the things that popped up? Was there more adversity? Walk me through the last 23 through 33. Yeah. Um, it, the halfway point would be generally the halfway point, maybe slightly past. Um, we had a little breakdown in um, motivation, reframing goals, interest, effort, I was not happy, um, changed our goal sets again, and uh, I was really upset. I went quiet for like a day and a half. I had to do some recalibrating. Um, so the original goal was world record. Second goal was? First place. Third and, goal um, was? Row as fast as you possibly can. Got it. And then all of a sudden, a little bit later than the halfway point, and, and those goals generally changed all before we even started the race okay um although getting first place was still part of it um and i, and I like the framing of row as fast as you possibly can just not as um going through a process of changing your goals and moving goalposts. um and then it turned into like hey, we're just gonna row for fun let's just get to antigua to be with our families let's just build our relationships let's have a spiritual journey and i was just like yeah, i didn't fucking sign up for this it's not what i signed up for i signed up fucking do everything and everything possible anything and everything possible for a world record and whether 
you know, the way I frame it in my head, whether you get the world record or not, becomes mildly interesting. Um, but if you're doing everything you possibly can and have control over to continue to achieve that, if you finish in first, second, 15th or last, it, it doesn't matter because you gave max effort based off of your intention. And, and that's what I measure when I set goals. Did I do this? It just wasn't in the cards for this race. Um, the weather, the uncontrollables didn't support it. No problem. I can reconcile not being disappointed, not having regret um, or, or animosity because that's what it was for me. In the very, very beginning, and I made it very, very clear when I accepted the, the position on the team and I reinforced that through every opportunity for the last two and a half years. And so, but that didn't process the same for others as it did for me. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I had to, you know, I'm just one of four. And so, you know, there's, Hey, I'm a team, I'm a team player. Um, I'm known for that. I take a lot of pride, um, not excessive pride, but appropriate pride. And Hey, I'm a team guy, team first, team first, no matter what, above the needs of the individual, above my personal goals, whatever. Um, and I just was really, really pissed around that halfway point when it was like, okay, Hey, we're just, let's just have some fun. Let's enjoy this. This is an amazing experience. Uh, you know, less, less people have rode across the ocean. They've been into orbit, like all that bullshit that comes up like, Oh, you're still going to set the record for fastest all American team. And you know, all the, all the weird contrivances, contrivances that people make to make something acceptable when they don't achieve right i just i'm not part of that that's not my style and um i recalibrated and came out the other side like okay i adjusted a lot of my leadership style a lot of my my processes internal and external a lot of the way that i tried to influence and engage and relate to the team when that shift happened um the crazy thing is is once the team meeting happened where that was decided our rowing performance went up and that pissed me off even more pissed me off even more because that means that we should have been doing that for the last six days seven days and we probably would be in a better position to win right now and our we would be happier and we would be having more fun and we would achieve all the things that you want to achieve as a as a subset of doing what we set out to do and so you change your goal sets performance increases and that just pissed me off even more that means that you had it in you physically and psychologically to do this. And you didn't, there was a barrier there. Um, or, or Tosh, do you, or, or, or do you think it was possibly that they were too focused on the outcome and not enough focused on the process? And once you started to just focus on the process, meaning just the day to day, and you didn't worry about being number one, that maybe that contributed to being faster. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. And I agree. I agree. I don't think that's the only thing, but I think that's a large piece of it, that psychological piece. And I'll tell you what, that's that differentiates winners from people that are happy with mediocrity when they don't let that concept in or they know how to fight it or they know how to like refuse it or manage it, right? Like and that's that's the space that I live in in my personal professional lifestyle right now when I mentor clients and I do events and how I lead myself like um and just you know i had another conversation maybe maybe it'll come up maybe it won't but um but yeah that's what happened and um i agree with you um in the fullest um but that's not the i don't think that's the only thing but that's probably the bulk of it right there and, but, but it was also short-lived 
it also just was like that for three, four days until some environmentals came in and made shit hard again. And then it was like, oh, well, okay, cool. Shit's hard again. And now we're just going to have fun and, you know, largely jerk off. Um, but we still rode. We still got to the finish line. Um, and I will say that some of the best conversations I've had with Jim, some of the best relationship stuff that I um, improved on with Brian and Jim, um, some of the, the the deepest, more profound thoughts that I was having internally around leadership and whatnot, um, my value sets and things like that, my processes happened in the last six, seven days. And um, I had a lot more fun. I yielded that I want to win. I want to do this. I, 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 I let that go. And I and now, now that comes at a cost, but I also received the benefit, a tremendous amount of benefit by opening up and allowing this other stuff to come in. And I'm the, I'm the beneficiary right now of, of doing that. And I feel good about those things. I feel really, really good about those things in the last, from the last six or seven days. Um, and I have the bitterness of the other stuff. I can see it all. Uh, or I think I can see what I can see. I'm sure there's stuff that I can't see, right? Like that's, that makes philosophical sense. Um, so I, I do recognize the value, the benefit, the outcome. And I'm very, very, very grateful, not only for the experience, but also to have shared this experience with these specific three other individuals. And the respect that I have for them is, is significant. You know, walk, walk me through what it was like docking that boat and stepping on to land i mean i, I watched a, a video a brief video of, i don't know if it was your team or another team but somebody got out of the boat and almost had a little bit like shaky legs because it was like man i just haven't you know i haven't really stood up fully or i haven't what physically what was it like and then also mentally what was it like to know that you you're done you did it you finished yeah um you've, you've been envisioning this dreaming about it trying to like manifest it in your head emotionally for two and a half years and in to the greatest extent for the last 33 days and then all of a sudden it's there even right before it's there it hits you and a little bit more like this is but then when you set foot on shore what you were feeling you realize like you feel it even more and so that was really wild, right? Like the, the, the peak of the feeling didn't happen when you finished. It just kept increasing until you got to hold, you know, your wife. And then I was able to hold my son and just like, oh my God, um, physically disoriented. You know, when we came in at night, a lot of bright lights, um, a lot of activity, a lot of noise that was foreign to us over 33 days. Um, the excitement, the sense of pride, the sense of accomplishment. Um, the realization now though also that the journey's over and then emptiness like this consumed my life for two and a half years now it's over now i've got this void what am i gonna do with this void um and then you know emotionally just it was it was pretty powerful um some guys cried uncontrollably everybody expresses um this this pressure relief valve right in in all of that pent up pressure is now gone and um everybody expresses that in, in their own unique way 
and it was just beautiful. You know, the everybody that showed up at the finish line, whether it was race supporters, locals, other teams, family, loved ones. Um, I mean, the, to receive us at two thirty in the morning um, was amazing. Amazing. Um, I had Vince and DT show up. I didn't even know they were coming. They just, oh man, you're doing this. We want to be there to see this for you. Like this is incredible. I was like hugging, hugging Nicole, hugging my son, and it's like. I see this big fish t-shirt. Then I see a second big fish t-shirt and I see these giant smiles. I was like, you guys, oh my God, I can't believe you're here. You know, um, it was, it was really, really cool. Awesome. Tosh, as you look back at this journey, these 33 days, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? I'm, I'm most proud of the way that I handled myself. I, I'm, aware of a lot of my shortcomings i'm aware of a lot of my um eccentricities and um it was some things that i recognized okay hey, you need to manage this you need to manage this you need to manage this during the race um don't fall into the traps that your 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 personality um has habituated into behaviors and be cognizant of that and always be thoughtful in everything that you do i'm really proud of how I worked through all of that and wrestled me to be the best version I could be for the team. Now, whether that was um, as beneficial as I thought it was or not, or it played out the way that was intended to varying degrees, especially at times, um, hit or miss sometimes. Um, it, I was really, really proud of all of that. I'm proud of where I arrived in my headspace, in my behaviors. I had one instance where it was an emotional response and it, when it happened, I was like, fuck, like I just did that. Um, and I had an awareness of it really, really quick. And then I spent the next like 20 minutes to an hour recovering that. Um, and I look back at that as just an opportunity for learning opportunity for growth. And that's okay. I'll uh, give myself the grace for that. Um, and the other teammates, the grace that they've afforded me when I had that moment. Um, there was a lot of responses or engagement or outbursts, but they were all deliberate and thought through. And it's like, okay, I'm actually going to do like, I want to do this. I'm not going to do that. Like that's me responding from an emotional place. Like let's think through this. Okay. Let's have this outburst or let's make this comment or let's have this engagement now. Um, but it was crafted. And even though maybe it was perceived as an outburst from an old place, it wasn't, it was deliberate and intentional to try to elicit a response to correct, um, something that was going on. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of that. Um, something that I don't do often in my life is take responsibility or credit for these things. And that's one of my, um, personal, um, opportunities for growth moving forward in the last couple of years, but really significantly right now is taking credit for things that I should be and I deserve to. And uh, that's one of them. And it's not coming from a place of, of ego or, or arrogance or anything like that. It's, it's legit. And um, yeah, I think I'm more proud of that than actually finishing the race. Uh, finishing the race was never a question. Like, I don't care where we were on the boat in the race. If the other three got off the boat, I was not getting off the boat. Um, I was finishing the race. There was no doubt in my mind ever. Um, so yeah, really, really proud of, uh, of that growth that I had, um, emotionally, socially. I love this quote from your Instagram. It said, 
I'm proud to a degree, but largely I'm just ready to be me again, only better. Can you yeah. dive a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, I want to be a product of my experiences. Um, so many people have an experience and then that will identify them. I call it an event horizon. They have an event horizon and now that becomes their identity for a period of time, if not ever. It's that dude. I think we talked about on the last podcast. It's that 50 year old dude at the end of the bar that he's telling everybody out. He was the high school winning quarterback homecoming prom dude, something, something. And it's like, yeah, that was 40 years ago. man. like, what have you done since? What are you doing now? You're living on your event horizon instead of collecting more and more event horizons and, and aggregating those to, to be better and better. What do you mean better, better, how, better, why, um, better suited to be able to be a positive contributor to, um, energy in the world, right? Whether that's with the five people that you keep closest or the hundred people that you surrounded with or whatever your, your station or position is to an ability to influence. But, um, yeah, I finished the race, proud of it. Um, and I want to leverage the things that I've learned in the growth that I've had through the race and be able to apply it to my everyday life now in hopes of finding a new event, um, whether it's a physical event or just whether it's pushing my margins farther or not or whatever it is. But like, I want to, I want to leverage all of that to make my life better. And those that I surround myself with and I influence, I'm better positioned, better poised, better educated, better informed to enhance their lives in some degree or fashion. And so um, that's, that's what I'm excited to do. The race is over. It was exceptionally time consuming, financially draining, um, resource draining. It occupied the back of your head 24 seven, whether you're aware of it or not <laughs> for two and a half years, I'm ready to engage in some new priorities, um, re-navigate my relationship with different endeavors and um, focuses, focuses, and um just grow help others grow from this do you have an idea of what you want to do next i'm going hunting <laughs> i'm going to argentina in a couple of weeks and uh gonna spend a week down there and and do that but uh event wise i've got two events in my head I'm, i i largely said that i'm done like this is it this is it for me um uh you CrossFit space, right? We talk yep. about, um, and when one of Greg's models, it was um, continue to push your margins out, experience things in new ways, um, you know, and see where your your capabilities, limitations are. And, and by subjecting yourself to different experiences, different tasks, different challenges, you are going to grow, right? Like by doing pull-ups, Eva Tordokens made her downhill slalom faster by doing pull-ups don't care about what how that works it just works and so uh, for for my life like that really resonated with me when i went to my first seminar um and it's how i've lived my life since i think i've lived my life that way for for a small degree before that um that's why it resonated but constantly striving for new bigger further harder things pushing your margins out and and i've come to this realization that that's great but I think I'm done pushing my margins out. Why can't we, and it's not out of um, laziness or convenience. It's, it's actually well-crafted and thought through that the time is now for me, where I'm at in my life, given what I've done, accomplished, who I am, other interests, priorities, that maybe I don't need to be pushing my margins out anymore. I've developed enough capacity and awareness of capacity that 
maybe I want to come back inside of my peripheries and enjoy with the people some certain things to a much lesser degree for for the enjoyment for the the sheer like hey i i really like going on six mile hikes with my dogs in nicole and she's hesitant to go on those with me because we know that like i just can't just go for a leisurely hike i have to go harder or i have to go 25 miles you know and i don't want to take any water like and so now what i've i'm doing is i'm distancing myself from the people that i want to spend the most time with because they're not comfortable at the distances or the capacity that I've achieved. And so what I want to do is like be happy with my margins. I'm not saying for the rest of my life, but like, Hey, why not take a step? And I don't think it's a step back, but take a step in a different direction and say, Hey, let's enjoy the things that I've put all the hard work and effort into achieving. And then why don't I just enjoy that to a degree that is acceptable for others to enjoy as well. And then take, take pleasure and, in in happiness and, uh, doing those things. And I said that like, so, Hey, yeah, I, I'm retiring. Like, I'm not going to, I don't need to go. I mean, what's, what's bigger than rowing across the Atlantic ocean in a, in a row, 25 foot rowboat with three other dudes for a month and a half or a month and some change. And what does that look like? What's the expense in terms of, you know, social capital relationships, uh, money, time, and, and other, you know, priorities. Like there's a tremendous amount of expense. If you keep getting bigger, 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 the expenses get bigger. I I think I'm at a place where I'd rather do 15 small things than one more really huge thing. Um, and, and with the fill the pleasure um, box a little bit more, not that I don't take pleasure in doing that. I, I do, but a different sort of pleasure um, through shared common experiences and, and events. Right. So, but I do have um, an itch now still um, has to go with that disappointment and being a little bitter about some things. And uh, so I don't know. I'm, couple conversations in the last week and it's like hey just i said for 2023 that i was going to prioritize my relationship um crooked butterfly ranch and the big fish foundation and if it doesn't align with moving those further down the road then i need to say no and so i think for a, a short period of time right now it's no i'm not gonna climb mount everest or i'm not gonna you know try to run across africa or some weird stuff but those things are exciting right yeah, absolutely. Tosh, thanks for taking the time, man. I could listen to you all day. I really just appreciate your wisdom and your storytelling. I appreciate you too, DJ. And uh, give my best to Brian and Pete and the family out there. And um, yeah, man, never never hesitate to reach out, even if it's just like, hey, I got a question or I got somebody that just I think would value 15 minutes of conversation. Man, I'm, I'm always here for the people that I care about and um, you and your community uh, included. Awesome. Appreciate you.